Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you, and we are blessed to have you with us this morning. Don't worry. That was all intentional, I promise. I, I, I had to give Cade and Joe, our beautiful AV team, a heads up, because I was like, I know that if I do that, they are going to sit there and go, what is wrong with the mic, and how do we fix it immediately? So anyway, uh, if you guys don't know me, my name is Corbin White. I'm one of the members of the pastoral team here at Midtown, um, originally from Springfield, Missouri, which is very popular for, for two things. Um, great drivers at sarcasm they we we are no, I feel like they prepared me really well for driving in Kansas City because when I got here I was like you know what I feel like I can survive in this traffic a lot better than I thought I would you know big city driving um, the second thing is um, cashew chicken which is the most Midwest thing you could ever think of it is not an authentic Chinese dish as some of you may think but it is basically fried chicken covered in a gravy of sorts that is supposedly made from cashews. There's cashews in the gravy, that's all I know. And uh, it's so popular that even at Panda Express, like their market team was like, we will not survive here as a branch unless we have cashew chicken offered at Panda Express. They don't have it here in Kansas City, correct? They have cashew chicken on the menu here in Kansas City? No, okay, I didn't think so. But in Springfield, Missouri, Panda Express has to have cashew chicken. So those are the two things we're known for. They we're very popular. If you ever want to visit us, I promise you know you can get some real authentic Springfield cashew chicken, and it's going to be amazing. Uh, but yeah, Springfield is where I grew up. It is also where I was able to attend my first Ash Wednesday service, praise God. Um, and that is the beginnings uh, service of the holiday, this church period that we find ourselves here, which is called Lent. Now, as the church in the U.S., we are far more familiar with the God of the mountaintop than the God of the wilderness. When suffering crashes into our lives and God's voice is hard to find, Lent is an annual practice that teaches us to find his presence in our wilderness. That's why we practice it, and that's what we find ourselves in today. And now I'm going to acknowledge that excruciating bit that I just did while I was setting up and making eye contact with a few of you. I did that because this morning we're going to take a look at the practices of silence and solitude. And to begin, I'd like to read to you what I had written in my notes to help guide me through the awkwardness of that moment. My notes say, go up and take a long time setting up, not saying anything and being very intentional to recognize the disruption, the unsettledness, and the agitation that silence can bring. Make eye contact with Chan, or Justin, or Jacob just long enough to make it awkward. Then take a deep breath and break the silence. So let's hear those words again. Disruption, unsettled, agitated. Think back on those moments and ask yourself, what did you personally experience in them? Do those words come close to describing it? Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised because ever since we have entered this space, there has not been much complete and total silence. Even in the moments that we paused between prayers and announcements, they were often very short, short enough to go unnoticed, or filled by the sweet sounds of Jordan Spence, our piano man. And that's just in our sanctuary. When we leave this place, we are immediately greeted by the sounds of a large city. There's the mechanical whirling of automobiles, never-ending construction, and the voices of people going about their day-to-day -day lives. In our cars, there's a constant beeping telling us that we really should put on that seatbelt, that we usually drown out with our favorite sports commentator, podcast, or playlist on Spotify, 
Or maybe you have a kid that does all the noise making for you. As we enter our dwelling places, Alexa is there to greet us and remind us that we have 17 items on our shopping list that we still need to go and get. Our refrigerators hum as ice is made and it clatters into the tub when it's done. Microwaves yell and beep and tell us that food is ready. Televisions flash to life with last week's episode of The Last of Us or a golf game that provides just enough white noise so we can fall asleep. And that's barely a Sunday morning and afternoon. I think we can all empathize with the white noise of the world today, whose volume knob has been turned all the way up to 11. On top of that, Pew Research has just shared this last month that 22% of US adults struggle with feelings of loneliness throughout their typical week. And this stat starts rising exponentially when compared with young kids, teens, and adults who regularly engage in things like social media. Long story short, we have a world that does its best to drown out silence and medicate loneliness with noise. And we, uh, when we look at the world this way, it makes total sense that even a period of 30 to 45 seconds of silence would be described with words like disruption, unsettled, and agitated. It's not something that comes naturally to, to us in, the, in this 21st century Western world. And that is why during the Lenten season, it is ever more important to talk about. So first, in our discussion of silence and solitude, we need to confront the idea of loneliness. So one of the reasons that these statistics are seeing so much growth and researchers recognize this is something we actually all had firsthand experience with, which was the good old vid, COVID-19 and the pandemic. For many of us, I think through that time, we probably felt like, oh man, I've gotten enough silence to last a lifetime. I've been alone in solitude enough that I will never have to do this again. But even then, like when we were in our houses alone or possibly with a roommate or a spouse, a lot of that silence was drowned out with things like Tiger King, Call of Duty Warzone, Zoom calls, mass trips to Walmart, all of these things kept interrupting a time where we could have had a lot of silence and solitude to the end that we really didn't experience it that much. We never got a chance to confront the feelings of loneliness or the moments of prolonged silence. It showed us something that we already knew. We fear silence and we fear being alone. For silence, it's understandable why we have taken so many steps to avoid it. Personally, I'm a huge movie fan. And if you think about any great movie where the director is trying to build tension towards a reveal, silence is something that they often utilize. This reveal could be dramatic, it could be funny, or it could even be terrifying every time a similar formula is often used. The noise of the movie, including the soundtrack, is completely cut. Our characters stand alone, not even music to help them. And that silence is there to help the audience feel off kilter, unnatural, on edge. When a movie is able to do that effectively, it can bring some of the biggest and bestest jump scares or the most jaw-dropping reveals. But even then, silence is something that does not in itself bring about resolution. It's only a pathway for tension to be resolved. Loneliness is another interesting technique in film. If you'd imagine a frame like the imaginary one I'm drawing, I'm drawing in front of me. Imagine a frame where only one character stands in the middle. 
As they stand there, our attention is drawn to them and them alone. There is nothing else, else that we focus on until the camera tells us so, with a pan or maybe something else entering into frame. We are with that character and them alone. Now, in a film, a character being alone can be the best things for things like deep development or change that will influence the outcome of a good story. But for us, when we are the main character in our own journey, sometimes the last person we want to be with is ourselves. We fear what will be uncovered. We fear the shadowy side of ourselves, a dark side, the compilation of all our worst traits that we know all too well. We fear the voice of our inner critic that brings forth accusations. We fear the replaying of embarrassing moments and memories that only exist for us to mull over again and again, wishing there was something we could do differently. We fear fantasies, sometimes violent, sometimes sensual in nature, that show us a side of ourselves that we would rather forget. And nothing drowns these fears out like just ignoring them with noise or company. Now, noise and company are not inherently bad. Because, you know, without a little noise, this would be a really awkward moment for me. Because I wouldn't really be able to communicate with you. Also, uh, without company, I would simply be in here on a mic by myself, and that's not something that anybody wants. Noise and comfortable, especially in this situation, are a real win-win. However, when noise becomes a coping mechanism, when it becomes our default way of ignoring our dark side, our world, or even God, then it becomes something that it was never meant to be. Like Alex touched on last week with fasting, he said that there was a time for feasting and a time for fasting. Just like that, in silence and solitude, there is a time for it and a time for engaging back with the crowds, just as we saw Jesus do in Mark chapter one. And while we're coming back to Jesus, who left early in the morning to be on his own. What he did in those moments was he declared silence and solitude to be holy things to participate in. Because he not only participated in it himself, but he actively pursued it. And to help us see them as holy, I'd like to make a distinction in the way that we think about solitude and loneliness with the help of a Christian author and thinker named Richard Foster. He put it like this, loneliness is inner emptiness, solitude is inner fulfillment. Loneliness is something that as we discussed, we fear because of what it brings with it. Solitude, however, is when we can make, our, make holy our moments of isolation and invite God into them. It is where we schedule time to be alone with no one else but our Heavenly Father. It is where we become silent and silence all the noise around us so we can hear God's voice when He whispers. And that is where we confront and leave the idea of loneliness and find the comforting idea of silence and solitude. And yet, even that can be scary. Why? Because when we come before God in silence and solitude, we are not in control. In fact, we give it up. We make the time, we make the effort, but once we come before God in the quiet, we embody the prayer of Christ when he says, your kingdom come and your will be done. Because the response of God becomes something completely and totally out of our hands. 
Chris Green, a Pentecostal theologian, speaks to this reality within our world when he says, we've made a world where it is easy to think that we can control what our experience is like all the time. Silence and solitude are two of the most mysterious disciplines that we engage in as Christ followers. Not only because it goes directly against the white noise and the normal habits of our culture, but because it brings us directly into the unknown. Alone in the quiet, we set no calendars, no agendas. We don't even speak. We simply breathe and invite God into the moment so he can have his way. Being vulnerable in this way before our Father is, like we said, scary. When the voices, the visions, the fantasies of our dark side encroach on our time of silence and solitude, we can be tempted to retreat from God for fear of his rejection. However, the comfort of the quiet is knowing that God already knows about these things. He knows our fears, our hesitations, our darkest inclinations, and even our desire to retreat. And he enters into those moments with us. Rather than telling us to sort it out and come back later, our loving Father asks us to come as we are into the quiet with Him so we may face the fears of our hearts with our loving Father by our side. And this is the beauty of silence and solitude, for it is where we enter into the mystery, the unknown, and realize that God is already there, He's always been there, and He is in control. And that is how we confront and make holy loneliness. But silence and solitude do not, does not only give us the ability to make those moments of being alone holy, but also, secondly, gives us, view, gives us vision for new horizons and a new world. To explore a little bit more of, of what I mean by this point, I'm going to borrow some words from one of my favorite Old Testament theologians. His name is Walter Brueggemann. Now, if I had a name that majestic, I would definitely want to write at least one book in my life because it would be plastered on the cover and I think it would look beautiful. There's just too many syllables for it not to have at least a little bit of a poetic feel. And thankfully, Brueggemann has written several in his lifetime. One of those books is called The Prophetic Imagination, a work describing how the prophets of the Old Testament had a two-pronged duty when trying to bring the people of God back into their roles as his covenant people when they had fallen astray. Now, when we hear the word prophet, we may think of several different things within our world. We may think of YouTube personalities screaming about an election or a recent event in the Middle East. We may think about crystal balls that predict the future or future events, or even a bad movie depicting what they think the end times are gonna be like. This is our culture's view of prophecy. And though it can try to pass itself off as Christian, the reality of biblical prophecy is much deeper. Because when a messenger from God comes to his people, they have a lot more to say about God and his relationship with the church than oftentimes future events. Brueggemann argues that the prophets had to do two things that they had to criticize and energize their communities. And so let's go into what those mean. The first one, prophetic critique, is the work of a prophet when they have to show people that things are not as they're supposed to be. This may include things like calling out idol worship, social and economic injustice, as well as periods where Israel was in exile or the wilderness. 
From Micah, the prophet, his critique was to act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with their God. For Jeremiah, it was recognizing that people in Israel were crying, peace, peace, when no such peace existed. For Moses, it was declaring in tandem with the plagues that Pharaoh and Pharaoh's God had no power nor authority to oppress the people of Israel. Is that idea of prophetic critique making sense to everyone? I'm seeing some nods and eye contact. That's good. I like that. Now, this is not a Pharisaic critique of just pointing to the wrongs of others and saying, well, that's bad. As we explore the Gospels, Jesus, not only the perfect priest, but the perfect prophet, does not act like the Pharisees. He's their biggest critic. So when we see true prophetic critique throughout Scripture, it often looks different. It is prophetic because it shows what the world is really like. It exposes the hearts of man before God and tells them that things are not as they should be. This is not how God intended for the world to be. These periods come with weeping, lamenting, repentance. It even comes with sackcloth and ashes, if that sounds familiar. The prophetic critique shows the world that things are not the way they should be. It shows the world as it exists is not what God intended, and he wants to bring us back to a better reality. Now, honestly, I'll level with you. Message is kind of a bummer because it's like, well, look at all these things that are wrong. It's a necessary bummer, I would think, but a bummer nonetheless. But the prophets did not just come in ripping off metaphorical band-aids and leaving the wounds to bleed. They also had the task of helping the people heal from the wrong and prepare for the work of the, war, uh, work of the Lord that was holy and right. This is the second part. And Brueggemann calls it prophetic energizing. And I know the bunny, the energizer bunny, is now in everybody's minds. Just roll with it. It's kind of similar. In prophetic energizing, the prophet now goes into a different role. He energizes the people of God for their work of ministry. If things are not as they should be, then heck, people, we got work to do. We have wrongs to right. We have alternative kingdoms to live in. We have a savior named Jesus that we need to embody. But that work can be just as hard, especially when it looks nothing like the work or the culture around us in the world. In a world of consumerism and greed, it means generosity. In a world of vengeance and violence, it means being peacemakers. In a world of individualism, it means getting to know our neighbor and loving them. The prophetic energizing is getting the people of God ready for the work by reminding them that this, the church community, is how God meant for things to be. It reminds us that God will bring us back to his original garden vision. But even while we are waiting, we have work to do. And this is why I bring up this idea of the prophetic imagination, is because this is where silence, solitude, and the prophetic imagination collide and blend so beautifully. The New Testament tells us that we are not only a group of a royal priesthood, but also a prophetic people. When the Spirit descended at Pentecost, the same Spirit that emboldened the prophets for critique and energization entered into the people of God. It is the same Spirit that we, be, uh, we declare we believe in every microchurch when we say the Apostles' Creed and in the doxology. It is the same Spirit that is within us, guiding us through our day-to-day -day lives that we now live. 
in the noise of normal, in the smokescreen of the mundane, it can be hard to remember that this is not the way that God intended things to be. We are so far removed from the garden that it is difficult to be reminded that our first responsibilities were simply gardening with our God in the cool of the day. This is why silence and solitude are so important. The quiet is where the Spirit of God can feed our imaginations to see the world as God truly sees it. The quiet is where we can be reminded of the pain within our world so we can mourn with those who mourn, so we can face sadness and violence and realize it doesn't have to be this way. And at the same time, the quiet gives us time for God to make, re make us ready for good kingdom work. It is a time where the Spirit can give nourishment so our bodies and minds can be sustained for the oftentimes hard kingdom tasks. And most importantly, it's a time for us to remember that just as Lent will end with a celebration of our Lord's resurrection, that these times of silence, these times in solitude, where we are reminded that things are not as they should be, we're not going to have to do that all the time. Because Jesus will return. Our Lord is coming back. God will establish his kingdom upon the earth, and the kingdom that we only imagine now will become a reality. It will be fully realized. God will bring our imagined world into reality. And the things that we can only imagine now will be brought right. Praise God. Finally, there is a freedom that comes from the work of silence and solitude. Now, I think we've already been hitting on this aspect of these disciplines. It's kind of blended throughout the first two points. But I still think that even if we're briefly touching on it, we need to touch on it nonetheless. Firstly, I'd like to take you all back in time a moment, using this quote from pastor and author John Mark Comer. Anybody remember this? Waiting at a bus stop, stuck in traffic, sitting in the theater before a movie, in the back of a less than enthralling political science class with nothing for your mind to do but wander through the infinite realm of possibility. While it is easy to sentimentalize something as inane as boredom, none of us honestly want to go back to a pre-digital world. We are more efficient than ever. I get more done in less time than I ever dreamed possible a decade ago. But again, pros and cons. We now have access to infinity through our, nor through our new cyborg-esque selves, which is great. But we've also lost something crucial. Little moments throughout our days to wake up to the reality. Oh, excuse me. Um, going back a little bit. But we've lost something crucial. All those little moments of boredom were potential portals to prayer. Little moments throughout our days to wake up to the reality of God all around us to wake up to our own souls, to draw our mind's attention and with it devotion back to God, to come off the hurry drug and come home to awareness. There's so much freedom found when we get off the hurry, the hurry drug, as John Mark Comer calls it. The white noise of normal when we retreat from it and come back to the reality of God all around us, it can be so freeing. When we can look at the joy of a child during worship and smile at their spirit. When we can look upon the creation of God from the flowers of the field and the lilies of the air, and we can say with our creator, it is good. 
even if they sometimes poop on our car right after we got it washed. And this freedom brings us once again to the resurrection. We have freedom in Christ from the bondage of sin and death. We have participated in this freedom through our salvation, through our baptism, and through the Lord's Supper. Silence and solitude are great times to reflect on where the Lord continually meets us. It is a reminder that whether we are entering or exiting the wilderness, that God is waiting for us. And it is a reminder of the freedom that we will find when the Lord returns and makes the world right once again, where we will again walk with God in the cool of the day and care for his creation. Worship team, if you'll go ahead and join me up here while we go into some questions. Firstly, how the heck do we do this? Because that all sounds great, but since I've started, all I've done is talk. There's not a lot of silence, and there's not a lot of solitude in that. So how do we do this tomorrow? How do we do this on a Monday? First, we have to start with sanctifying the small moments. Sanctify means to make holy. So when we sanctify the small moments, what we mean is to look for small moments of quiet and invite God into them in your day-to-day. When you find yourself alone or silent, even for a short while, invite God into it. Take a moment, take a deep breath, and invite your loving Father to share that moment with you. When you're listening to a coworker tell you about their home life and you're sitting quietly, invite God. When your kids are all telling you about their day at school or their time at grandma's house, invite God. When you get into your car and find the radio off, he is there, anxiously awaiting your invitation. Secondly, make intentional time for silence and solitude. Find a closet, a park, or a break room. Make it a holy space where you can be alone with your Father in heaven who loves you. Find the time to cut out all the white noise and look inward, to face the thoughts impulses that we hide from everyone else and bring them before our compassionate God who knows what it's like to do this whole human thing. Start small if you need to. 10, 15 minutes of silence. Even five. Who knows? You may start to enjoy it so much that you intentionally schedule it longer. Finally, and this is a hard one, be ready for your silence and solitude to be interrupted. As annoying it can silence will end and we will have a time to rejoin our fellow image bearers in the world. John Mark Comer, because I don't like him enough, puts it best. There are times when what we really need is alone time with Jesus. But when life happens, people happen. You set aside time to Sabbath or pray or just to take a night off with no plan, but then you get a text from your boss. There's a minor crisis. Your two-year-old swallows a Lego Kylo Ren, so you go to the closest emergency room. Your roommate had a bad day and goes to chat two hours later, and they're still crying. You know, ordinary life stuff, if any of that sounds right. You ever feel like try as you might, you just can't get a time to rest? Don't
on those who interrupted. He went to the villages. He cared for their needs and showed them the love of the Father. But even in that, he never canceled his times of silence and solitude. Simply rescheduled them. Let us be a people who are ready to face interruptions with compassion, while simultaneously realizing that finding time to be alone with God is just as essential as showing people compassion. Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.